0: Good afternoon. And welcome to our latest installment of the Banner Lecture Series. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So glad you could be with us today on this day where we remember and honor our veterans. Uh, raise of hands, do we have any veterans in the audience here today? Thank you for your service. appreciate it. So a few uh, program notes before we get started. We always like to keep you all aware of what's happening. Even though we're under construction, we are anything but dormant here. Um, So many of you are probably familiar with our Curators at Work program. Uh, It's a virtual program that we've been doing for probably the last year or so. Um, Tomorrow will be uh, our latest installment. Uh, This is at noon. Uh, You do need to register in advance, but it is free. Uh, And it is appropriately themed, I think, for today also. Uh, The program is entitled Walking Off the War, Veterans on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, join Marine Corps veteran Sean Gobin and our own VMHC curator Karen Sherry to learn more about how the Appalachian Trail became the catalyst for Sean's recovery from combat and the inspiration for the founding of Warrior Expeditions, a nonprofit organization that sponsors excursions for veterans to promote healing. And I'll also add uh, very quickly um, that Sean very generously has donated. Uh, some of his equipment, his boots, his walking poles, et cetera, to the VMHC, uh, and we'll, they will have its debut uh, when we reopen to the public uh, in the spring. Uh, our next curator conversations will be December 13th at 10 a.m. That's also a virtual program. Um, we collect, of course, uh, throughout the year, Uh, Our curators are always very busy uh, documenting and preserving Virginia's history. And uh, this particular program, uh, entitled New to the Collection, will give you an opportunity to see what they've been collecting over this past year. On December 14th at 7 p.m., our movie Myth Busting will continue. Uh, That is also a virtual program. Uh, We'll be screening uh, and discussing a Christmas story. We'll have some special guests from the Science Museum of Virginia uh, as well uh, on, that, uh, on that program. Uh, our Virginia Journeys program, a members-only program um, that I'm sure many of you have uh, taken part in in the past, uh, is up and running again. And our first program in the spring will be on March 16th, uh, where uh, you'll travel with our staff to Buckingham and Prince Edward counties to learn about the people and events that contributed to the Brown v. Board of Education uh, decision in 1954. Uh, some of the places that you'll be visiting include guided tours of the, the Moton Museum, uh, the Kurdsville Community Center, the Ellis Acres Memorial Park, and Union Grove One Room School. Our next banner lecture uh, will be on December 9th at noon. Uh, Bruce Ragsdale will be here Uh, talking about his book, Washington at the Plow, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. But we're very pleased to have with us today, uh, Dr. Caroline Janey, who will discuss her book, Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army after Appomattox. Lee's surrender was less an ending than the start of a period marked by military and political uncertainty, legal and logistical confusion, and continued outbursts of violence. Ends of War takes readers from the deliberations of government and military authorities to the ground level experiences of common soldiers. Ultimately, what unfolds is the messy birth narrative of the lost cause, laying the groundwork for the defiant resilience of rebellion in the years that followed. Dr. Caroline Janey is the John L. Nell III Professor in the History of the American Civil War and Director of the John L. Nell III Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. She's no stranger to the VMHC, having twice been a Mellon Research Fellow and having spoken here before. Carrie is the author and editor of several books, including Remembering the Civil War reunion and the limits of reconciliation, and Petersburg to Appomattox: the end of the war in Virginia, and of course she'll be talking about her most recent work today, "Ends of War: The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox." Please give a warm VMHC welcome to Carrie Cheney.
1: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. (laughs) Say it's so nice to lecture without a mask on at University of Virginia, we're still wearing masks. So it is really nice to um, be up here to see your faces. Thank you to Adam, thank you to Graham for inviting me and thank you to the veterans in the audience. If you don't mind, I'd also like to say a personal thank you to my grandfather who's no longer with us, but Roby Janey was a Lieutenant in the fourth division of the Marines and saw action at Iwo Jima in Saipan. And he was the man who very much taught me to have an appreciation for the Civil War, was an avid reader, took me to Gettysburg for the first time to Antietam. And so I certainly think about him every day, but today I think he deserves a special tribute. So with that, let's turn to the end of another war in the years since 1865 many of you may have thought about Appomattox as the end of the war in fact we use that term as a shorthand we say Appomattox we think we all know what we mean but what unfolded in that village was not necessarily the end of the war it was the surrender the surrender of a single army It was not a blueprint of what to do with the tens of thousands of Confederate soldiers who had surrendered. It was not a peace treaty to deal with the political questions that were sure to follow. But in the days, the weeks, the months after April 9th, 1865, what followed were many unanticipated results unanticipated results of the disbanding of rebel forces became an issue, not just for the United States government, but for local communities as well. Black and white, North and South, loyal and rebel, and certainly here in Richmond. But I want to start with the familiar part of the story, and that is the surrender terms the Grant offered to Lee in McLean's parlor. The first was standard at any surrender. That is, the Confederates would turn over their arms and their flags. But as at Vicksburg, Grant would allow the rebels to go home on parole. And this is an important point to remember. They are paroled prisoners of war. They were sent home, but they were still prisoners of war. However, at Appomattox, Grant added a provision that had not appeared in the other surrenders and one that would prove controversial from the moment he offered it. That is that paroled Confederates were not to be disturbed by United States authorities so long as they maintained good behavior. In other words, as long as they didn't break any laws. By including this provision, Grant had tacitly acknowledged Lee's soldiers as enemy combatants. And as such, they could not be tried as traitors for waging the war. Well, what happened after these terms were agreed upon? Grant and Lee, First, both appointed three generals who would serve as a commission to work out the specifics of the arrangement. And unlike at the previous two surrenders that Grant had forced at Donelson and Vicksburg, Grant had insisted on a formal surrender where the rebels would lay down their arms and flags. This would take place on different days for the cavalry, for the artillery, the formal surrender for the vast majority, which was the infantry was to take place on April 12, 1865 both before and after that formal ceremony took place, uh, regiments and company commanders were in charge of of getting a list of every man under their their command. And this would, would serve as part of the parole list. This is how those of you that may have looked at the compiled service records, if you see this, this person's name has appeared on one of those parole lists. Two copies would be made, one for the United States government, one to be kept with Confederate officials. Even with this, though, Lee was still worried that his men would have no proof that they had been surrendered. So Grant offered that each man would receive a pass, indicating that he was free to go home as a paroled prisoner of war. After receiving their passes, the approximately 28,000 men of the Army of Northern Virginia who were at Appomattox made their way home. Many of them walked, some as brigades regiments or even companies marching away from Appomattox i think that's something that we haven't perhaps understood in the past that brigades are marching away from Appomattox others went home with maybe only one or two other comrades some took up grant's offer that he would offer on april 10th that they could travel free aboard u.s steamers and railroads a provision that Grant is going to reverse. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, but you can see the stamps, stamps that allowed for provisions, that allowed for transportation. I know it's probably too small to see, but this is a soldier on his way home to Texas, member of of Hood's brigade. As late as July, he is still using US government transport, so ships trying to make his way home. For some, this trip would take only a few days. Certainly the case for soldiers here in Virginia, but for others, those from the deep south states, especially Texas, the journey would take much longer. But it's not only those men who were here at Appomattox that we need to consider. A substantial portion of Lee's army would not surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. And here I'm going to do some very rough math for you, so please bear with me. Of the approximately 60,000 men that Lee had available to him from both the trenches of Petersburg and the fortifications around Richmond on April 1st, so 60,000 men on April 1st, only 26,000 to 28,000 were formally paroled at Appomattox between April 9th and April 12th. If we account for the approximately 11,500 casualties, that were sustained during the battles between April 2nd and April 8th. A conservative estimate would suggest that at least 20,000 men were missing. 20,000 men who should have been at Appomattox were not surrendered at Appomattox. Why? Well, their reasons were as varied as the men themselves. Many had been foot sore and starving stragglers, unable to keep up with the relentless pace of Lee's army as it pushed west. Some believed there was little use in resisting any further and elected to go home. Others saw the writing on the wall and refused to submit to what they saw as the humiliation of surrender. And at least some slipped from the lines on April 9th, refusing to acquiesce. We forget that there was a small battle on the morning of April 9th. You can see the cavalry here, Lee's cavalry up on the left-hand corner of the map somewhere around 2,000 cavalry troopers along with a fair number of artillerists escaped the Union cordon on April 9th. Many following the lead of officers such as Major General Thomas Rosser and Colonel Thomas Munford headed west toward Lynchburg where they would reconvene and make plans on what to do. Some of these men disbanded and went home. Some went home to await word on what to do. Indeed, on April 12th, The very day that the infantry is participating in the formal surrender ceremony uh, at at Appomattox, Rosser rode west to Stanton, Virginia, where he issued a proclamation from what he now declared the headquarters of the Army of Northern Virginia. This is an example of this. This comes from the archives at UVA. And if you can see in the top right corner, corner, he's declaring this the headquarters of the Army of Northern Virginia. Stop and let this sink in for a moment. The vast majority of Lee's infantry is at Appomattox surrendering. But here we have the headquarters of the Army of Northern Virginia. He's also given himself a nice um, promotion. He's now a lieutenant general. He took it upon himself to do that. But I- I'll read to you from this. He calls upon his men to shoulder their muskets once more and return to the field to meet the arrogant invader who had insulted you, robbed you, murdered your dearest friends and relatives outraged your fair women, despoiled your homes, and dishonored all that is most dear and sacred. He promised that he would lead these men against this dastardly foe, and he promised he would never surrender until, quote, the purple current ceases to flow from my heart or until you are a free, independent, and happy people. Rise like men and come to me, he commanded. He instructed companies and regiments to assemble at Charlottesville, in Stanton, or in Lynchburg, without delay. You see, for men like Rosser and others including Munford and and Lunford Lomax, the war was not over yet. Some headed to North Carolina, where they hoped to join forces with Joseph E. Johnston. Appomattox, in other words, represents a great irony. It was and continues to be seen as the end of Lee's army, and therefore the war. But a significant portion of Lee's army hadn't surrendered. For them, the war was not over. But what about these approximately 20,000 men? Did Grant's terms apply to them? Well, on April 10th, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wrote to Grant asking if the troops that were operating in Northern and Eastern Virginia were to be included in the surrender or only those who were under Lee's immediate personal command. Grant believed that the same terms should be offered to quote all the fragments of the Army of Northern Virginia. What he wants is for them to voluntarily surrender. He said they could be paroled wherever they might be located. In other words, Grant wants the war to end. He saw paroling as a deterrent to keep these men from continuing the war by other means. And here it's important to point out that even though guerrilla warfare didn't prove to be a major factor, the fear of guerrilla warfare was very much underscoring what Grant believed. Uh, Sherman is, 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 saying the same sorts of things down in North Carolina. Grant is worried about people taking it to the hills, to the valleys, that some sort of guerrilla warfare would um, would encompass the entire South. It's one thing to fight organized, professional military forces, maybe not professional, volunteer forces. It's another to wage a guerrilla style warfare. And this is one of the things that is motivating Grant to extend these paroles as far and wide as possible. He saw paroled soldiers as more trustworthy than disloyal civilians. So this is leads me to one of the most surprising things that I found in researching the book, and that is the number of Lee's soldiers who were paroled at sites well beyond Appomattox. Some of them did so by their own choice. In the days and weeks that followed April 9th, thousands of Lee's men decided that it was in their best interest to turn themselves into Provost Marshal's office, wherever they might find them. And so if we look at this map between April 12th and April 16th, Lynchburg is over here to our left, just to the west of Appomattox. It's cut off on this map. Somewhere around 3,000 men were paroled in Lynchburg. That had been the site that the cavalry was, was trying to reach. A lot of Lee's men will congregate in Lynchburg. Once the Union Army rides into town, they establish a provost marshal's office, and these men seek paroles. Same thing is happening. The other red circle down in the the, um, the right hand corner. This is Burkeville Junction. Somewhere around sixteen hundred men uh, were paroled here in a three day stretch between April fourteenth and April seventeenth. In Winchester, Virginia, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock had ordered circulars posted throughout the lower Shenandoah Valley. He'd actually been instructed to do so by Secretary of War Stanton, said let's reproduce this exchange of letters between Grant and Lee. I wanna offer proof to people who might be doubtful that in fact Lee has decided to surrender. So these are posted all over Winchester and the surrounding area. Hancock will also provide notices in the local newspaper. And I I don't expect you to be able to read this, but this is proof that he is putting things in the newspaper in the days following Appomattox. And he's urging Confederates to come in to surrender themselves. He says, every military restraint shall be removed that is not absolutely essential. Your sons, your husbands and your brothers shall remain with you unmolested. So you can hear him appealing to women on the home front as much to the soldiers saying, send your men in, we'll get them paroled. This is, this is how we're going to end the war. One of the really interesting things that happens, you can see these are the lists from places like Winchester, but the paroles themselves, I showed you that earlier parole pass from Appomattox. Many of you might be familiar with the paroles from other places. Look, Strikingly different. And one of the most notable differences is that in the days after Lincoln's assassination, the information that is included on the parole changes. Now, beyond just the soldier's name and regiment, now we have physical description. We have age. We have height, hair color, complexion. This is a way of identifying men to make sure that the parole that they're carrying is actually their parole. Now, of course, someone could fill it out themselves if they got a blank copy. But this is something that Hancock introduces in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. And I think this is a way of providing proof. He's very worried that that some of the people involved in the assassination are going to pass through the valley. They're going to come to Winchester. He thinks Mosby's involved and otherwise. So this is one way of offering more evidence of who is who. For those who didn't come in willingly, Hancock sent patrols up and down the valley. They go to Newmarket, they go to Mount Jackson, Woodstock, every little place in between, looking for the thousands of cavalrymen that they know are hiding out in the valley. If the remnants of Lee's army, though, came into federal posts so, such as those at Winchester, they gushed into Richmond. Eventually, almost 2,000 men would be paroled here, and that's not including all of the men who were already paroled at Appomattox, who were flooding the streets of Richmond. But this paroling process is happening throughout the state of Virginia. Here is another soldier who comes. You can see he comes here to Richmond. This is Spencer Waring. Uh, The story of how I found this, uh, I I think it is worth telling, Uh, my husband was sharing what I was working on with a coworker, and she said, Oh, I have an ancestor, and his name isn't on the list at Appomattox, but I have this picture of him. Well, sure enough, I go to the compiled service record, and there is his parole that is from Richmond. And so he had been one of those men for whatever reason, hadn't surrendered at Appomattox, but now we have an image of him and evidence that he was paroled here in Richmond. Again, this is happening throughout the Commonwealth. This is based on a database that I created from a list of about 15,000 men from Lee's army who were paroled at sites beyond Appomattox. So the Northern Neck, the Eastern Shore, on the peninsula in Richmond, at Farmville and Lynchburg, up and down the valley, Lee's soldiers trickled in, sometimes as groups, sometimes as individuals, but regardless of their reason in seeking a parole, or accepting approval, in the weeks after April 9th, the ability for them to do so reflected both the inclusiveness and the flexibility of the terms that Grant had offered. And it wasn't just Grant being magnanimous. That's the term that we hear so often. He was magnanimous. He was doing exactly what he thought Lincoln wanted him to do. But it also is evidence that this is how Grant thinks the war can end to bring the war to as swift and neat of an end as possible is to make sure that all of these men are accounted for. But Grant had not, he could not have accounted for the host of social, political, and legal questions that follow the surrender. And I wanna share just two of those with you this afternoon. First, would Confederate soldiers, paroled or not, be allowed to pass through loyal Union territory on their way home. Well, within a week of Lee's surrender at Appomattox, large numbers of paroled soldiers were streaming into Washington, D.C., into Baltimore, Maryland, and even into New York. Uh, This is what this, this print is from here. Many of them are coming because they are requesting free transportation from the government based on those orders that Grant had given on the morning, morning of April 10th, they wanted transportation to their homes in Kentucky, Tennessee, and other southern states. Well, Lou Wallace, who is in command in Baltimore, is absolutely infuriated at the number of Confederates that are pouring off the ships in Baltimore Harbor every day. And this is especially the case in the wake of Lincoln's assassination, the night of the Of April 14th into the morning of April 15th. So he writes to Grant and he says, What am I going to do with all of these Confederates? They're loading into the city. There's a disloyal sentiment here. I need to quash this. So Grant writes back to Wallace and he offers his own seemingly changing interpretation of the terms that he had given on April 9th and April 10th. Let me read to you from Grant to Wallace. It was no part of the agreement that we were to transport or feed paroled prisoners. Actually on the morning of April 10th, special orders number 73 had in fact offered that to, to an extent. This is Grant. By the terms of the surrender, they were allowed to return to their homes. And I ordered that their paroles should be a pass to go through our lines where it was necessary to do so to reach their homes. And that when they traveled on roads or boats run exclusively by the government, no fare would be collected. I did not calculate that men from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia would expect to go home by way of New York. We furnish no transportation over private roads and those prisoners who have not homes in Maryland need not be allowed to remain, but may be arrested if they attempt to do so. Well, some of these Confederate soldiers, again, even those who've been paroled, did find themselves detained for long periods of time. This happens at Fort Monroe, for example. On April 23rd, 10 men from Lee's army, men who hailed from Tennessee, had written to Lee. They've been detained here at Fort Monroe, and they explained that they had, in fact, been on their speediest and most direct route to their home in Tennessee. What do they mean? Well, they want to, can we see this? Is that showing up at all? So Fort Monroe is not there. Fort Monroe is up here. Uh, They want to sail from Fort uh, Monroe up to Baltimore. Then they want to take the B and O and come across here to Cincinnati, down to Louisville, and then down to Nashville. That's what they believe is going to be their quickest and most direct route home. But they've been detained by Union troops. They've been told they can no longer travel through Baltimore. Moreover, there are other instructions that they're learning that they need to to get rid of their Confederate uniform. And they write to Lee and they say, we have no money to purchase new clothing. We have no relatives in the area that can support us. What are we going to do? Well, Lee will write to Grant. This will be one of, of several times that Lee writes to Grant. And Lee says to him, I've heard of many such cases, and this doesn't make sense to me because I thought under the terms of the parole, they were allowed to go home. And now I also hear that they're going to be forced to take the oath of allegiance to the United States before they return home. Lisa, that, that wasn't part of the agreement. That wasn't part of the terms that we signed at Appomattox. Grant holds out, and there's much more to the story that you can read about. But I tell you that on May 1st, Grant finally intercedes in the case of these 10 Tennesseans. And he says to the officials at Fort Monroe, send them home. I am tired of dealing with this, but don't let any more in. We're not going to do this anymore. Get, get, Get them home. These aren't the only men that are being detained. Within the Union lines at Alexandria and Fairfax, Returning Confederates were required to register with the local provost marshal's office, which is what you see going on here in this wood sketch. Their names are also printed in newspapers. Pick up the Alexander Gazette any day in the week and weeks following Appomattox, and a list of returned rebels would be printed in the newspaper. This is meant to be a warning to loyal Unionists in the area. In Alexandria, however, several hundred paroled prisoners Were also held in a former slave pen. Could this be any more ironic? Men who had gone to war in order to protect their rights as slaveholders were now being held in the very pens from which they had bought and sold other men and women. All of this, all of this was meant to remind them that they weren't equal citizens. They weren't free to simply go home. They were paroled prisoners of war. It was unclear what their status was going to be when all of the states re-entered the Union, if that ever happened. So that's one question. The second question is related, and that is, what was to be done with the approximately 70,000 men from the loyal states, from the so-called border states of Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland who had fought for the Confederacy? You see, it was one thing to send paroled soldiers back to states that had seceded. There, the majority of the population had been in rebellion and terms for recognizing the civil governments and those entire states were still up for debate. But what about in those states that had remained loyal to the Union, where the majority of the population was loyal? Would former Confederates be allowed to return to those states, especially in the wake of Lincoln's assassination? Keep in mind that that both Booth and many of the other conspirators, as well as those who allegedly helped them along their way, had been from Maryland. All of this is proof that there is still a threat to the Union. Now, these questions are coming up even before the assassination. As early as April 12th, Union officials had worried about the effect of Confederates coming back to Baltimore. You see some 20,000 Marylanders had served in the Confederate armies. And again, many of them are sailing into the harbors every day. And only days after the surrender, one Union officer had asked Grant whether every soldier sailing into Baltimore might be required, every Confederate soldier, might be required to register his name and to discard his Confederate uniform. But after Lincoln's assassination on the 14th, by city native and actor John Wilkes Booth, the intensity, the the atmosphere in Baltimore is absolutely on pins and needles. The city was immediately placed under martial law, and all Confederates in the city were then required to report to the provost marshal where their papers would be examined. Only those who could prove that they had formally lived within the boundaries of Baltimore would be allowed to stay and they would have to abandon their Confederate uniforms within 12 hours. Everyone else would be forced to leave, or they would be arrested and detained. All of this is creating a question that that Grant is going to have to deal with, also the administration, including Attorney General James Speed. In the days that followed, they would offer opinions or changes to the policy that modified those terms that had been offered on April 9th. Now, it's imperative that we keep in mind that there are still Confederate forces in the field. Joseph Johnston has not surrendered yet in North Carolina. Kirby Smith is still in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. The war is not over yet. On April 19th, the same day as Lincoln's funeral procession in Washington, D.C., Grant would, would, would deal with this issue, and he would inform all of his subordinates that, quote, all rebels who claim home in States that never passed ordinances of secession. This is going to be an important point that never passed ordinances of secession have forfeited them and can only return on compliance with the amnesty proclamation. In other words, taking the oath, he spells out which States he's talking about, Maryland, Kentucky, Delaware, and Missouri are such States. They may return to West Virginia on their paroles. April 22nd, Attorney General uh, James Speed responds to an inquiry from Secretary of War Stanton, and Stanton is absolutely enraged by the number of Confederates who are coming into Washington, D.C. He's starting to wonder whether Grant's terms were ever legal in the first place. So he asks uh, Speed to, to look at the terms, to look at Grant's terms and decide what he thought of him. What does he make? He, he asks several specific questions And I won't get down into the weeds of this, but this is what Speed has to say. He says, rebel officers and soldiers who appear in public in their uniform are violating their parole, and therefore, they can be detained. Like Grant, Speed declared declared that rebels had no homes in loyal states. They could not return. They could not return to Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, or Missouri, Without taking an oath of allegiance, and this for, for many Confederates, they're simply not willing to do. In Baltimore, Lou Wallace is absolutely beside himself. He he has been rearing and ready to go all along, and now he he has some orders and he has an opinion. I, sh- I should point out that Speed's opinion becomes a general order that grant issues. So it becomes military policy. It's not just an an opinion by the attorney general. It is now military policy. So General Wallace subsequently orders the arrest and the imprisonment of any Confederate within the boundaries of of his district. He also issued a circular appealing for information from loyal citizens and ferreting out offenders. So he's trying to get locals to tell them to be informers, if you will. In other words, this isn't just a problem that's playing out at the Union High Command. On April 24th, the Baltimore City Council formally protested the return of any rebels to their city, quote, believing as we do, their presence in our midst will be a constant source of irritation fraught with the deadliest mischief. It's not just Baltimore that this is happening. A group of Unionists in Frederick, Maryland. Another group in Carroll County barred Confederates from returning. There's an Allegheny County formed a Committee of Vigilance and Safety. Do you hear the Revolutionary War rhetoric here? They're to look out for returning rebels. So all of the states, and you can see it's the whole top part of Maryland that are in the shaded lines. Every one of these counties, either passed a resolution or formed a vigilant committee that was charged with preventing Confederates from returning to their counties. This isn't the only thing that's going on. Benjamin Harris, a citizen of Maryland and Democratic member of Congress, was arrested on April 26th for giving money to two paroled Army of Northern Virginia soldiers so that they might disregard their paroles and continue to, quote, make war against the United States. And in early May in Shepherdstown, Maryland, Henry Kidd Douglas was arrested and tried by a military commission for wearing his Confederate uniform in public. In other words, he had violated his parole. He would be sent to prison to Fort Delaware, where he would remain until late August. This is all going on in Maryland, but West Virginia is a little bit of a different story. Unionists in West Virginia were particularly stung by Speed and Grant's decision, which said that rebels could return to West Virginia. While West Virginia Unionists were equally desirous of any more acts of rebellion like the assassination, they had another reason, yet another reason to protest the return of Confederates. Remember, West Virginia had been admitted to to the Union in 1863, but it wasn't clear that their creation of a new state would in fact stay. There were several legal challenges. It goes all the way to the Supreme court and West Virginians loyal West Virginians are worried that if rebels returned to the state approximately 18,000 of them and voted, perhaps they could overturn West Virginia statehood. Perhaps West Virginia could return and be part of Virginia once more. So Unionists face the prospect of having thousands of paroled Confederates returning to a state that they might be trying to destroy. So guess what? In late April and early May, at least 12 communities here in Union strongholds uh, offered uh, past resolutions, I should say, barring former rebels from returning to their homes. But it's more than just resolutions. This is more than just words. For example, when Confederate veteran Samuel Woods returned to his Barber County home with one of his sons, a group of armed civilians, including several Union veterans, stopped and ordered him to turn his wagon around. He pulls out his parole pass. He's a lawyer before the war. He's trying to talk his way out of this. That doesn't, that's not real successful. He pulls out his revolver. The men allow him to pass. But throughout the summer he will continue to be harassed. At one point, someone rides a horse literally through his house as an act of of, uh, vengeance, trying to convince him to leave. Ultimately, he and his family will pack up and move to Virginia because it simply isn't safe for them to stay in Barber County. In Marion County, there were reports that there were two Confederates that were hiding out in the woods. And the home guard shows up at, at this woman's house, the mother's house, and they ask, Have your two Confederate sons returned? And and she says, no, they're they're nowhere around here. Well, they were found in the woods and there was a shootout. One of them was killed and the other one seriously maimed. In other words, violence was still continuing. So ending the war would mean a host of new realities for the entire nation, but perhaps for none more so than the African-Americans, especially four million of whom had been enslaved at the war's onset. In 1861, one out of every 20 to 30 Confederates had brought an enslaved man with him to manage gear, cook meals, tend and wash his clothing, tend to his horse. The number and percentage of body servants had declined over the course of the war, even as the Confederate government impressed more enslaved men as as well as free African-American men into laboring for the armies. But by the time of Appomattox, there were still hundreds of black men, both enslaved and free, that were still attached to Lee's army. Some of these men, we can find their names because they are listed on the parole lists, but we know about others because their um, Confederate masters wrote home about them. For example, John Crawford Anderson of the 13th South Carolina, wrote a letter from the camp at Appomattox to his father informing him that his valet and cook, Peter, quote, still proves true and says he will never desert the cause, but is very much elated at the idea of getting home. We can hear the lost cause arguments about the faithful slave that would gain popularity, but we don't have much of a a record of Peter's emotions. We hear that he's elated at the prospect of going home, but we don't hear more about what what he might've been been thinking. Perhaps he was like some of the African-American men in the ranks of the United States Colored Troops that were also there at Appomattox, who saw April 9th as Freedom Day. One of those soldiers, a man by the name of William H. Harrison, recognized that he might've been camping alongside Lee's men instead of with the Army of the James. Harrison had been born in Richmond He, too, had been a camp servant. He had been forced to follow his owner to the war with with Lee's army. He'd been captured in 1863, and he had been forced to fight in the United States Colored Troops. Yet from the ranks of the Army of the James, he would proudly proclaim on April 9th his part in destroying slavery. I was with General Grant when Lee surrendered at Appomattox, he later wrote, that was freedom. But what about men like Peter? What was the end of the war like for them? How would they get home? How would they make it back to their loved ones? Well, that is in fact one of the dilemmas that they faced. How would they travel? Would they leave with the men they had come to war with? Would they strike out on their own? We know that many did in fact strike out on their own, but at least some former slaves accompanied and uh, accompanied paroled Confederates believing it was the safest alternative. The fear and terror that had undergirded slavery had not ended with Confederate surrender. And indeed, these men had reason to be afraid. For Confederates, the presence of the USCT served as a stark reminder of slavery's demise and the rise of a new social order. Many Confederates complained about encounters with USCT soldiers along the way. The diaries and letters are, are filled with complaints about having to register with USCT soldiers and otherwise. But near City Point, while waiting to board a steamer bound south, a group of Florida soldiers claimed to have killed a Black soldier. From Richmond, a Black newspaper correspondent reported the quote, Rebel officers continue to strut about in uniform in which they delight to murder Union soldiers in a spirit which is almost beyond the degree of loyal forbearance. There were likewise several cases of white Southerners tried by US military commissions in the spring of 1865 for assaulting and murdering black soldiers. The presence of black men in uniforms, perhaps even more so than the surrender itself, represented the death of the Confederacy. There is so much more to this story, but I'd like to leave you with this. Rather than serving as a clear ending to the war, the surrender of Lee's army brought into stark relief the legal, the social, the political questions that had plagued the war from the very beginning. Perhaps most important, there had never been a golden moment when Lee's soldiers had been so thoroughly subjugated, I think that's my indication, it's time to quit, that that, that there's never a golden moment when they believe they have been so thoroughly subjugated that they are willing to accept any conditions. If anything, this process of going home, the humiliation of having to register at Provost marshal's office, the bans on Confederate uniforms, the presence of of African-American soldiers And the the issues that those from border states had to face made them more defiant. It emboldened their claims of Southern righteousness and Northern barbarity. You see, the disbanding of the Army of Northern Virginia had not marked the end of the nation's division. It was only the beginning, foreshadowing much of what would play out in the decades to come. Thank you. think we have time for some questions and there are microphones if you have a question. So if you'd like to raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you.
0: Did any of the uh, Confederate uh, generals who resisted surrender, you know, in April, eventually surrender, or do they just kind of go their way?
1: Who am I speaking to?
0: Oh, my name is Stephen.
1: Okay. I can't see you back there. Thank you, Stephen. Great question. So, yes, the vast majority of the Confederate generals who refuse to surrender at first, this includes Munford, Rosser, even Mosby. Mosby's not a general, I know. But Mosby, who famously disbands his command on April 21st rather than, um, than surrendering, will, will seek a, a parole in June. So almost all of them, Fitzhugh Lee is another one who rides off on April 9th. He decides that night that it's in his best interest and he turns around and, and goes back to Appomattox. So the vast majority of them do, although people like Munford and Rosser do hold out for quite a bit. Great question. There's a question down here.
2: Do you think that uh, if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated it would have made a difference? If Lincoln hadn't
1: been assassinated it would have made a tremendous difference. But that's I think mostly because of what happens under Andrew Johnson's watch in terms of the the surrender terms and how they would have been how they would have played out. You know, what ifs? we you know have to be cautious in 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 working in what-ifs but i i think some of the debates that come up between president johnson and grant in particular over whether or not to uphold those paroles i do think that 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 would have played out a bit differently um, johnson isn't willing we we often hear that the indictment against lee and this and, and 36 others in the summer of 65 that that johnson quashes that he doesn't it, it, it lingers for quite some time. It's really the 14th Amendment that takes that off the table. But I, I, the one thing that, and this isn't exactly answering your question, but I'll flip the question just a bit. I think what Lincoln's assassination did in terms of, of the paroling and the the way in which ending and disbanding the armies played out, it actually made the paroling process, it, it, it upped it there's even more effort to make sure that all those Confederates from Lee's army who hadn't been paroled were sought out. And we see the border state issue. I'm not quite sure whether we would have seen that border state issue had Lincoln, um, not been assassinated. That's, I think that's the great what if. Thank you.
2: Carrie, wonderful talk. Thank you, Wade. Um, I don't know if everybody in the, in the audience knows, you certainly know that the uh, photographs from the Library of Congress are online and you can zoom in on them. Um, John Kosky and I were looking at a picture that we'd seen a million times of the White House of the Confederacy, the Davis Executive Mansion. And um, it was taken uh, the week after Appomattox. And on one of the columns in front is a broadside that says, get your parole here. <gasps> And inconspicuously, always before, over to the side is a line of Confederate soldiers. Oh my God! And gosh. John Kosky speculates that they were there lined up to get their parole at uh, the White House. Yeah, at the White House. So you <laughs> might take a look at those uh, pictures. It's it's really fun. That, that was so first this is the paroli- series
1: that Ord is part of.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, they had their uh, Union headquarters was right? at the White House. And they were paroling them there, and evidently they moved it to the state capitol later. And to the customs house. You showed a parole uh, at the state capitol.
1: Right, right, Uh, Spencer Waring's, But it's also the custom house. They're using the custom house as well. But wow,
2: thank you. My great-grandfather got his at Berkville. Thank you for mentioning (gasps) that.
1: Oh, very nice. Thank you, Wade.
3: Um, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, new book uh, from uh, Princeton University. It's, uh, you know, today the word traitor, it's been used to, uh, you know, describe some of the Confederate generals. And I always wondered about that, but now after listening to you, I mean, I can see somebody from Virginia who came back to Virginia to fight for Virginia, but how do I explain some brothers from Delaware who came to the South to fight against the Union and then going back to Delaware, which never left the Union? So I think the word traitor there is going to be hard to uh, not not accept more than you know what's happening um. here in the in Virginia. But I don't I don't know if you've seen the the book from uh, Princeton, but it, it's it's an interesting uh, new concept.
1: So I, I take your your point about those who who leave, and and this is what very much infuriates um, Stanton and others in the the Lincoln administration. I guess we have to say Johnson administration by that point. There are very very few that come from Delaware, but. We'll use Maryland as an example and why they might, their reasons, there, there could be a host of reasons. Perhaps they were originally from Virginia, perhaps their family is Virginia. Most likely they come from a slaveholding family or have slaveholding connections is the the overwhelming. That's not as likely in West Virginia in terms of the, the slaveholding connection, but they still see themselves as Virginians and had rejected West Virginia statehood. But your point is well-made that it seems a pretty clear cut if you're going to abandon, you can you can no longer say you're fighting for your state at that point. That argument doesn't hold any water when you've left your state, which is precisely what Stanton and others are pointing out. So thank you.
2: A year after the uh, surrender at Appomattox, what, what were the newspapers saying? What was the public uh, mood in, in the country towards... Uh, the uh, the Confederate who hopefully by that time had reached home. And what was the uh, economy uh, that a year after? Uh, what did they do in terms of work and, and, and the economy after arriving back home, if you know?
1: So let me start a little bit sooner than that. And I'll start in August of 1865 and talk about the mood in the in the the loyal north first and foremost and it is very much becoming a a partisan the partisan divide is is clear that a significant number of northern democrats are saying the war is over let's move forward let's figure this out remember northern democrats hadn't been on board with emancipation for the most part anyway for the very much for the most part so they are are more willing to to move forward when when Lee and others are indicted, there are, are plenty of people in the North who are pushing back and saying, we don't need to go there. We we need to heal. We need to, to move forward. And that is even more the case by the spring of 1865. Spring of 1866, excuse me. Spring of 1866, though. Th- so one of the things that happens April 2nd of 1866, Johnson will officially, legally declare the war at an end, and that has very important legal implications where the paroles are concerned. But there, the, the disputes are going to be about what reunion looks like. So there are still bans on Confederate uniforms in places where there are, are Union troops, and that includes places like Norfolk in the spring of 1866. But you also have more disputes about Freedmen's Bureau, so it's less about those paroled confederates and more about what is this post-war world going to look like in terms of the economy people are are doing many of the same things that they had done before the war to the extent possible farming certainly resumes of course there are are a host of challenges with that industry is starting to return but that that second question i think is is a, a book in and of itself but um in terms of the the larger the one one i'll add one more point and that is that there are many confederates even in the the summer of 1865 who are starting to recognize that that the the army had had just splintered and that all of these men are coming out of the woodwork to get paroled and so there's some real questions about loyalty there by the spring of 1866 those questions are no longer on the table because it's pretty clear that there's not going to be another um, another war at that time. Anyway, that the war is in fact over by the spring of sixty six.
0: Was there ever any consideration about detention in those first in those first? Oh, weeks? do you mean at an you, organized plan of of detention of Confederate soldiers to do a more organized? Perot. Grant
1: knows that's not possible. Okay. I mean, there's a reason it doesn't happen at Appomattox. There's a reason it doesn't happen at Vicksburg, and you know we we can go to all the problem. It happens at Donaldson. It happens at, at other surrenders, but it's just not practical. Just absolutely not practical. And if the goal of the war is reunion, if you want this war to end and people to go back and become part of this nation again, then imprisoning the the men in the ranks that that's not going to be helpful and they they're blaming the the leaders they're they're blaming the the slave power they're blaming the military and political leaders and so uh you know davis stevens and others are arrested immediately and held of course davis is held for for two years but there's never any discussion about um holding all of the the rank and file as prisoners of war I, I in terms of literally holding them as prisoners of war i think that looks like one more question up here in the front
0: i had a question concerning the prisoners of war were they offered parole passes or was there some type of prisoner exchange?
1: So those that are in prisons, such as Fort Delaware, Point Lookout. So those will be uh, paroled really beginning in, in June. Andrew Johnson will issue an order to clear out those prisons. And some of the men describe an even more formal process of the um, that, that they do have to swear an oath to the United States government as opposed to what happened at Appomattox. There's no oath swearing at Appomattox, which is another thing that I I think sometimes we take for granted. But that process will begin uh, really in earnest throughout June, batches at a time, so many hundreds of men at a time from all the Northern prisons that were still operating. And there's one caveat to the rule about Confederate uniforms because by end of May, early June, that is a blanket statement across the Confederacy, no Confederate uniforms, but... For those men that are returning from uh, Johnson's Island or Fort Delaware, they will be allowed to wear their uniform until they get home. But, and and so, and everyone will be cleared out except for those who committed a crime after Appomattox, which included the men uh, for the, the Lincoln conspirators and a handful of other folks. So Henry Kidd Douglas has to stay until August 23rd. It's more to that story, but in terms of the big prison release.
3: All right, thank you all.